The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Business Locker Room Show with Kelly Riggs. In business, you have to play to win. You need an edge. You'll find that edge in the Business Locker Room. Hey, business is like sports, and I want to bring the locker room to the boardroom. Giving you the playbook and the coaching you need to improve your business performance. With compelling interviews, cutting-edge business tactics and ideas, and the X's and O's segment with Miles Austin. I welcome in my good friend, Miles Austin. Welcome to the Business Locker Room. Now, here is your host, Kelly Riggs. Hey, greetings and welcome everybody from Beantown. I'm Kelly Riggs, your show host. This is the Business Locker Room, the show with compelling conversations and useful content guarantee you're going to use to improve your business starting today. No need to wait. The kind of guests that we get, they bring it and they bring it in a very real way. And we get a lot of things that you can use to improve your sales performance, your management performance. If you're an entrepreneur, a business owner, an executive, you're definitely in the right place. We talk marketing, sales, social media, business strategy, a little bit of everything. Today, in just a few moments, I'll be joined by, by my friend Townsend Wardlaw out of Denver. We can talk some football as well. And Denver, uh, the Broncos doing well. I'm in Boston. The Pats had a big day yesterday in uh, Boston, Massachusetts for an engagement uh, this week and excited to be bringing the business locker room to you directly. We have got a lot of things happening on this show over the course of the next couple of weeks, uh, next several weeks, actually booked through the end of the year with fantastic guests. And I can't wait to put these folks in front of you. Again, we'll be talking about leadership and management and sales and marketing, a little bit of everything. Really excited to continue to bring this show to you. This is our 29th episode. This one is entitled Powerhouse Lead Generation. And my friend Townsend Wardlaw joins us. He is a guy that uh, spent a lot of time at uh, some very large companies, uh, people like AT&T and uh, other companies like that, where he, he developed his chops as a sales guy, a sales manager, and uh, finally got tired of doing the corporate uh, wheelhouse and decided to jump out and form his own company. And now works as uh, he is the self-proclaimed sales architect. And I can tell you, he is at exactly that. He helps companies drive real, sustainable, profitable change within their sales organizations. And he is a specialist. He works with companies between 1 and 20 million. So if you're looking to go to the next level, double your sales in the next 18 to 24 months, Townsend Wardlaw is the guy that needs to be on your team. Townsend, great to have you in the locker room. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kelly. Excited to be here. Man, you're uh, you're doing it up in a big way there in Boston, or in uh, Denver, rather. I know that you've changed. Yeah, you're changing a lot of things on the fly. Uh, You're one of the really smart guys that I know in this business, and uh, you're always looking at the horizon, well over the horizon, actually. Tell us a little bit about where you came from, because you ran a sales company for quite some time, and uh, you actually sold that off and moved into a third phase in your life. So sort of describe that transition. 
Yeah, actually, uh, I, I, I like to say that I, I lost my mind back in 2002 and, and quit a very well-paying, uh, very cushy corporate job uh, with a large company and, and lost my mind and started my own company. And originally it was envisioned as kind of a sales training and development organization. I was going to go and you know, teach other companies how to sell. The problem was, uh, for, for, for whatever reason, I chose March of 2002 to, uh, to make the move. And some might remember that, that pretty much the, the wheels seemed to fall off the world in March of 2002. And I believe the day after I, I, I officially resigned from uh, my, 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 my salary job, to start my new company, uh, most of my clients had to call me and tell me that they were pushing all their spending out until next year because the markets were bad and really bad timing, I guess, or maybe good timing. I, I very quickly, uh, as, as I had a family and a mortgage and all that good stuff, had to figure out what I was going to do to pay the bills. And what I reasoned was that if companies weren't going to pay me to help them sell, they would certainly pay me to generate revenue for them. So I, I very quickly flipped the company into what probably is one of the very first true sales outsourcing outfits out there. And right. uh, we literally would go and, and, and pick up a territory or a product or what have you. It really specialized in new market launch or new product entry, really the tough stuff. And we would build and, and deploy a, you know, a strike team to go out and, and try, to, try to build some market share or, or sell some products um, that the company was struggling with. Uh, that was a very, very exciting business. It was very attractive to our prospects. What I figured out very early on was that um, I could get more clients who wanted people to sell than I could find good salespeople who were willing to work in a, you know, a leveraged basis because that's what we did, a, a, an upfront a recurring fee that was small but a lot of back end. So I'll make the long story short. Uh, over a number of years, I had to flip the company into developing its own sales resources. And about halfway through the journey, uh, my clients started to figure out that I was basically building these very talented salespeople from scratch, literally had our own development program, et cetera. And uh, they started asking me to do it for them. So I moved from a sales consulting company to a company that actually trained and placed uh, entry-level salespeople, phone, phone people, et cetera. One of the interesting byproducts of that is that it was a very experiential learning program, and we actually had to have, have stuff for them to work on. So on the back end of this you know, sales academy, if you will, uh, we had a very sizable uh, sales uh, demand creation, appointment setting, outsourcing business. Uh, peak years typically would make upwards of about three quarters of a million outbound phone calls for you know dozens and dozens of clients. So, learned a lot on that that journey for sure. Well, you you certainly you had the back end on the IT services. I know you spent time at. Uh, TRW and Lucent and Avaya and some places like that. So you were in telecom. And then uh, based on what I'm hearing you say about that company that you started, clearly you had a lot lot more of the, uh, the, the IT side of it working. I mean, you became very fluent with, with CRM and, and managing sales from a call center standpoint and that kind of thing. H- has that really directed where you are today? I mean, is that a big, big part of who you are today? Uh, undoubtedly. I mean, I, I, I bill myself as, you know, as a sales transformation architect, which is sort of a fancy marketing speak way of saying that I'm obsessed with process and structure because I really believe that, you know, underneath it all, sales is about the science of selling and how you move people through the process and move them towards, towards a buy from an appointment and meetings, et cetera. So uh, there was really no way we could have you know, run the kind of company that we did at the scale that we did without systems and process. And, you know, I always sort of laugh because almost everything that, that, I, that I train on and teach and deploy today 
is a result of stuff that I learned in this, in this, in this crucible, if you will. Right. Literally, we would have you know, 20 clients at a time, 80 people on the floor. Uh, our people would cycle through very, cl- very quickly because we, we would place them on the other end uh, after they worked for us. So we were exposed to all sorts of different you know, industries and company sizes and buyer types and deal sizes. And you know, we were constantly trying to find out, okay, how do you, how do you create you know, scalable and repeatable processes that allow people to ramp quickly and deliver results? And you know, answer your question directly, that was impossible uh, without technology, without, without Salesforce automation. Uh, just could, couldn't have been done without the analytics behind that. Absolutely right. Townsend Wardlaw is my guest here in the business locker room. You can find him online, townsendwardlaw.com. Really highly recommend you check out his website and make him a regular follow. Also on Twitter, at Townsend Wardlaw. And you, so you've been there from the beginning. When we talk about sales automation and demand creation, lead generation, all of those kinds of things, you, you've seen the entire gamut. You've sort of came in with the first wave and the second wave, probably now the third wave. What, what's, what's been the biggest impact of all this technology on salespeople individually? <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think I'm going to glibly say uh, confusion has been the biggest impact. Yeah, yeah. Not, not that that's a good thing. You know, it's funny. I, I started, if you will, uh, what I like to say is two or three acronyms before CRM. Back in the you know, T, TRW and actually the BDM days, we were building custom, what were called customer information systems, you know, basically rudimentary CRMs, you know, built on AS400s and really, really kind of rudimentary stuff. Uh, when I was with, with BDM, we were actually one of the early integration partners of, of a company that became Siebel. Um, so back in the good old days of client server, you know, you couldn't get into CRM for under a million bucks in software and, you know, 25% of the, the software actually, actually, actually worked. To me, you know, when people ask about technology, uh, there's a lot of thoughts that I have. The first one is that companies still seem to believe that technology is going to solve the problem, right? One of my great frustrations is that so many times companies want to deploy technology to answer a question that they haven't really fully formulated yet, right? And right. So that's, that's sort of problem number one is we think technology is going to solve a problem. When I'm talking to somebody about that, I always say, hey, pick up that thing in your hand that, yeah, see that smartphone? Does that help you not be late to meetings? And the answer is no. It, it has a calendar. It has tools, but it doesn't change your paradigm of time management. If you suck at time management, you're going to be late to meetings, and you're going right. to not get things done regardless of technology. So that's number one. Number two, I think companies still, you know, by and large, forget that technology has to be in service to the user, you know, just as, a, as much as it is to the company. Fundamentally, if you're trying to deploy a CRM, uh, if it's not set up where the end users are going to see it as a value add to their life, uh, that's going to be a problem. I would say on an average year, I probably implement or fix or get out of the garbage can, you know, a couple dozen instances of, of, of Salesforce. That's one of the platforms I, I, I really like from a technology standpoint. But in almost all the cases when I come in, uh, it's not set up properly. It's not, it's, not, it's not set up in a way that's user-friendly, where the layout works or where the, the folks have either been trained or the process understood, you know, enough so it's really going to benefit people in their day-to-day life. Very simply, technology has to serve the user in terms of allowing more efficiency, effectiveness, what have you, with an, you know, with an appropriate implementation and layout and structure. You know, I could take a CRM and, and, and use that to double or triple or quadruple 
the raw efficiency of a sales rep, how many opportunities they can manage concurrently, how many meetings they can have scheduled. It, that, that's a value proposition that any, any sales professional is going to get behind because it, it's going to make them more money. But it's often been positioned as management needs to see this. You have to put this stuff in here so we can see what you're doing, and nobody ever takes it from the other end around. Last comment on technology I'll make, and really this relates, I think, as much to CRM as marketing automation, et cetera. I am absolutely blown away after you know, staring at this thing for you know, probably 15 years at the access that companies of all sizes have to amazing technology that is incredibly powerful to their business that years ago you know, were only accessible by a precious few. I, I don't think most companies really, you know, or people really realize how much the cost of technology has come down and allowed you know, very small companies, if, if applied properly, to compete you know, nationally, globally, you know, et cetera, with, with just amazing technology. No, I agree wholeheartedly with you. You know, it is interesting as I listen to you describe that whole process. There are some people who simply want to implement technology, like you said, because they feel like they need it. Some people want to implement technology because they're big brother and they want to know everything that's going on with their salespeople and aren't, aren't typically using it in the right way. But there are still lots of companies out there, Townsend, that, that have a real fear of technology. You know, it's going to take up too much time. It's too much. It's too expensive. Uh, I want my people selling, not entering stuff into a computer, all of that kind of thing. Yeah. And, I, and I think there is a real lack of understanding of, A, what is out there at what price point and what it can actually do these days. Yeah, and, and what it's going to, you know, what it's going to require to actually implement and support and coach, et cetera. I mean, it, it, inarguably, technology has a has an administrative overhead, right? If you don't Absolutely. have to that in your planning and implementation process, you know, when I'm, when I'm managing a sales team or coaching somebody who's managing them, one of my questions is, what kind of time do your people set aside to do cleanup, right? I mean, it's just like, you know, what, what does everybody do on Sunday afternoons while they're watching the Broncos or watching the Pats, right? They're, they're going through their email. They're cleaning up the crap that accumulates during the week. That's a, that's a natural and, you know, anticipatable, if you will, component of technology. It has to, has to be there. Um, right. Yeah. Anyway, it's certainly true. Hey, we're going to take our first time out. Let's, uh, let's come back on the other side. We'll talk more. And by the way, you want to stick around. We're going to talk about the death of content marketing from the perspective of Mr. Townsend Wardlaw, who is our guest here in the business locker room. I'm Kelly Riggs. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Kelly Riggs is an author, a highly acclaimed speaker, and a business performance coach for companies and executives across the country. Now in his eighth year as founder and president of VMAX Performance Group, Kelly has written two books, One-on-One Management, What Every Great Manager Knows That You Don't, and Quit Whining and Start Selling, a step-by-step guide to a Hall of Fame career in sales. Both are available on Amazon.com. Is it time to put Kelly to work for you? For more information on training or consulting in sales, leadership development, or strategic planning, visit VMAXPG.com. That's VMAXPG.com. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, 
Listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjoke All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. This is Dan Walshman, and you're listening to the Business Locker Room Show with Kelly Riggs. Yeah, my good friend Dan Walshman bringing us back into the second second segment here in the Business Locker Room. I've had him on a couple of times, and uh, Dan, he is a fantastic guest. And really highly recommend his book, by the way, Edgy Conversations. Our guest today is uh, not a writer by choice. Uh, we've had this conversation, Townsend Wardlaw. You'll find him at TownsendWardlaw.com. And when I say writer, I mean of a book because the guy is a prolific blogger and writer online. And one of, one of your recent um, writings on LinkedIn is the death of content marketing and what's next. Before we get there, Townsend, let's talk more about this, this idea of, of technology because it's gone from million-dollar CRM applications to $15 a month. You know, I mean, getting CRM, yeah, it's crazy. But but there's just so much that is out there in terms of tools. And, of course, each week, Miles Austin brings us something that just blows my head off in terms of what's out there that that you can use to drive lead gen and every other thing. What are are some of the pieces and parts that you use that you like to see uh, your clients get involved in? Well, you know, these, these days, you know, I'm, I'm beating the drum of tools and technologies that allow us to capture and convert prospects into our, you know, what you'd call the big funnel, right? We used to think about sales as the sales funnel, but these days, the funnel is, is nonlinear, meaning it, it, you don't just kind of move through once and that's it and buy something. It also starts far earlier in the journey, right? When people think about selling, uh, these days, prospects don't really want to talk to a salesperson and have a selling conversation or a buying conversation until they've fully educated themselves, formed opinions, you know, checked out what other people are doing, etc. So in a lot of ways, it's pushing you know, the selling part of the conversation towards you know, the, last, the last 20 yards of the, of, of the game. Unfortunately, right. that has the potential really to, to further commoditize technology solutions and selling organizations because you know, they're not really there when the prospect is starting to form their, their problem statements, their desired outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. So the technologies that allow us to capture and get people engaged early in the process are really things I care about. So landing pages, uh, things like Unbounce and lead pages and technologies which are purpose-built to do conversions, you know, a lot of social media tools. Right? I'm a big fan of LinkedIn Publisher. And then, uh, you know, of course, marketing automation technologies which manage everything in the background, you know, long before the CRM gets the, gets the hand raise, if you will. Yeah, in, in fact, actually, we're talking about two different things, and I think this is one of the challenges that face salespeople and businesses of all stripes, and that is that we're actually talking about the marketing side of things. When you talk about content marketing and you talk about bringing people into the funnel, that's the attraction side. You're trying to get people in, in, in your stream so that they see who you are and what you're doing. We would equate that much more with marketing than we would with sales, but at the same time, because of social media technology, that line's gotten pretty gray now, has it? Uh, more than gray, right? I mean, I think it's almost, it's almost completely vaporized. You know, I, content marketing is something that's gotten a lot of buzz and everybody's talking about it. And, and 
as, as you know, I've, 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 I've penned an article. I talk about the death of content marketing. But whenever I get in that conversation, I always tell a story. And I say, you know, 15 years ago, probably, maybe a little longer, when I was you know, selling for, it was probably Avaya or Lucent or one of those guys. Uh, I, was a, I was an overlay application specialist. So I came in, you know, the AE brought me into position, something, uh, you know, very technical and, and very specific. And I could figure out very quickly, a lot of times, that the prospect, the CIO or whoever we were talking to, the VP of technology, that they were interested, but they weren't really in a buying motion. I remember one case in particular was sitting down with the CIO and, and, and they were talking about, you know, putting in a new call center and all the technology. And I said, hey, what, what else you got going on, right, this year? And the CIO proceeded to share with me that they were implementing some supply chain automation and some other things. And that created an opening for me to ask, so is this really something you're going to be deciding on? Are you going to be, you know, figuring out in the next six to nine months, or are you kind of starting your investigation process? And of course, he said, no, we need to digest that other stuff. Well, close my laptop. So great, let's not do a presentation. Of course, at that point, the account executive passed out on the floor, you know, totally mortified. What I said was, you know, how can I help you? What do you need? Anyway, we concluded the meeting. It was polite. But that really wasn't the end of it, right? I went home and I had this little shelf uh, in, my, in my home office there. And it was a shelf of books and articles and other things that I had collected. And I would buy, you know, books by the caseload or get a Harvard Business Review, you know, business case. And, and I'd print out a bunch of them. And I had envelopes. And I had a little, you know, file box and I would write, you know, blah, 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 CIO of this company. And I'd, you know, send a little article to that person with a nice little, you know, handwritten note. And then I'd make a note of that in my note card. A month later, I'd send him a copy of, at the time I, I loved Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm book. And I'd highlight a couple of things and, you know, I'd put some sticky notes in there and I'd send a nice letter and I'd sign the inside cover. And I would do that for six or seven or eight months. Every month, every three, four weeks, they'd get something from me, not a, not a sales you know, cut sheet, not a pitch thing, but something that I thought would bring value to their life. Well, lo and behold, you know, nine months in, give or take, my phone rang, right? Because on every one of these letters, I had my card in there, et cetera. And my phone rang and they'd say, hey, Townsend, you know, can we get you back in here? We're ready to talk about that call center now. Well, guess what? That's content marketing, right? That is right. staying relevant and on the radar of the people you care about and being seen as a valued partner long before you know, the, the sellable moment actually appears. And, you know, to me, that was an innovation back then, something that just seemed very normal. These days, I, I would suggest it's more of a cost of doing business. If you're not relevant in the development process, uh, why, why would you think that you've earned the right to take their money when they're ready to buy? Yeah, especially in this day and age when it is so incredibly easy to be in contact with people and uh, ubiquitously social media has, uh, has become a staple in everybody's diet. And yet you write this article called The Death of Content Marketing. Yeah. So where does that come, where does that come from? Well, you, you sort of answered it in your run-up there, right? Because essentially the ubiquity of communication, social media, email marketing, advertising, uh, you know, these days we're inundated with stuff even in our media feeds that are actually ads that look like they're posts, has created almost this, this cacophony, this, this, this just, you know, senseless noise of content. I mean, I, how, many, how, many, how many more five tips and tricks for this or the 10 things you need to know about that or ebooks can we possibly consume? I, I just can't imagine somebody printing all this stuff out and stacking it next to their nightstand and reading it ad nauseum. And then when you do print this stuff out and read it, you know, is it really, you know, is it really valuable? Is it really useful? So 
one of the interesting things to me is that, that content marketing, as I was just talking about, has been around forever, right? Adding value through stuff that's not your sales collateral, right? That's the, that's the bottom, bottom line. However, because technology has become so accessible and because we have all these channels, uh, marketers have seized upon the ability to now, you know, pour gasoline on the content marketing fire. Uh, in some cases, that's productive in that, you know, you see great content coming out. In some cases, it's downright annoying. I mean, uh, people essentially outsourcing their content creation to people who may or may not have even have, you know, our primary language as their first language. And, and, and you get these things that are like, okay, you're just doing it and going through the motions. So kind of my point in that article was that content marketing as a, uh, as a, as a philosophy and a discipline has come into the forefront and is simultaneously exploding or imploding upon itself because there's so dang much of it. Everybody got the memo last year that, oh, I've got to create content. So guess what? They're creating tons of content. They're not really thinking or scrutinizing, does this content add value to my customer's life that they can use today? Is it going to help them with a problem that they have? You know, a lot of people think of content marketing as, well, I'll bombard them, I'll inundate them with information that's going to convince them that, you know, they need to buy what I have or that the problem I'm talking about should be top of their list. When in fact, you know, the real essence of content marketing has to be, you know, almost, almost a really altruistic view of if you are my customer uh, someday, how do I serve you today? And in the process of doing so, uh, develop credibility, develop trust, you know, be seen as a, a thought leader, et cetera. And, you know, it's not just marketing's responsibility anymore. I mean, a lot of, a lot of sales organizations that I talk to, I, I, I challenge the sales folks, what are you doing to bring valuable content, you know, to your future prospect? So... Absolutely right. Townsend Wardlaw is my guest. Again, you can find him online, townsendwardlaw.com. And all the information about the show, by the way, at bizlockerroom.com. Guys like uh, Townsend on the show every single week, bringing you the good stuff at bizlockerroom.com. If I'm hearing you right, Townsend, what you're suggesting is, is that there's an enormous amount of quote-unquote content marketing going on, but perhaps not a lot of it is really actually what we want it to be in terms of content, i.e. it's not valuable to people, it's, it's just noise. Is, am I hearing that right? A- absolutely, Kelly. The, the other problem is, even if it is valuable, how does that filter to the top, right? Let's assume right. you got you know, 10 eBooks on your desk. There's probably one in there that, that's a pretty good guide or you can get some useful stuff out of it, but it's finding that, you know, the, the, those kernels of wisdom, if you will, in the pile of, pile of junk. Um, I think I shared with you or you saw in that article that uh, I was really caught up, if you will, in the last year with content marketing and creating lots of lead gates and sort of all these, uh, you know, machinations to convert my content into not just viewers and visitors, but actually people that opted into my list. And I was managing all that and, you know, figuring out where people came from and what articles they read. And what I saw very rapidly was a, a degradation, a decline in the, the value that, that I thought I was bringing to my audience, right? Having all these lead gates, all these, you know, devices to try and get people into my funnel uh, was really creating not only a hassle for me, but I think a, a barrier to entry. I also saw something quite fascinating as people get more sophisticated with how they're being marketed to, right? It's no shock now that when you click on a link, you're going to be taken someplace and there'll be some sort of offer. And if you give them your email, you know, you'll, you'll get a prize or whatever it is, an ebook or a download. Well, what I've seen is the, the 
increase of what I call the opt-in, opt-out. Somebody downloads your ebook or your guide or your whatever it is, and immediately when they get the confirmation email, hey, here's your ebook, they click the unsubscribe. So in many ways, you know, content marketing is going to be a victim of its own success if marketers or salespeople continue to pursue it as, you know, this transactional, you know, trying to get a lead name for a, you know, for a, for a piece of content. Yeah. In fact, if I could quote from your article, you, you say in your bullet points that here's what's happening. Click-through rates are anemic. Form yep. completions are pathetic. Open rates for your newsletter are laughable, <laughs> and watch what happens when you ask for anything more than an email address. Yeah, it a- absolutely goes in the tank. And then to your last point, when people do get things that they seem to have an interest in, they immediately just turn around and opt back out. So that that means that the game is changing right in front of your eyes. And I know you're not a guy that sits around and and uh, takes that for granted. You're you're doing some very specific things. One of those absolutely uh, blew me away, and a lot of people that I know as well. When you have decided to open up everything that you have that you used to try to attract people with and you've just said, here, you can have it. You can have everything in my hard drive that has anything to do with content lead generation. Why did you do that? <laughs> uh, well, the, the, a couple of reasons. The first honest one was I got tired of managing it all uh, and, and all the complexity. <laughs> okay, that's fair. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, the, the real the – real, the, the real essence of, of why is that I firmly believe that to create the future, you have to destroy the past or cut ties with the past, right? And to the extent that content creators like myself think about our content as where the value exists, we sort of have this protectionist mentality, right? And, you know, it was interesting. I was sitting around one day and kind of thinking about this problem, and I thought, well, maybe I should, you know, start giving some of this away. And as context for everybody listening, you know, I had embarked this year on, on a very intentional path to monetize my content. I was selling eBooks on my website and guides, et cetera, and programs, $7, 27, 97, whatever, and was having success with it. So I literally was taking a revenue stream that I had and destroying it by giving everything away. And I did it very intentionally because ultimately I don't believe that content in and of itself creates any value, right? It's just content. It's just stuff. And, you know, no matter how good my ebook, my guide, my cheat sheet, it's the application of that content. And if I truly want to serve my audience, I want them to consume the content. I want them to use it. I want them to engage with it, not just download it so I have my email and and kind of pat myself on the back. You know, a couple of years ago, I thought I was, you know, doing really well because I had all these website visitors. Well, but my list wasn't growing. Well, now, my list was going, and I was actually monetizing this, but I had to ask myself, are people really getting value of it, and how do I do that? So my thought was, I'm going to give away all my content, create open access to it. I'm a, basically, if you go through one of my lead gates now, you get unfettered access to a whole Dropbox series of folders. I probably have four or 500 documents up there. All my best stuff, nothing hidden, nothing held back, no special offer. If you click here, it's, it's just all there. And the epiphany that I had was that the value comes in the interaction, right? The, the comment I made in the article was, content's dead, but conversations matter, right? Conversations are where the richness are. And, you know, when I put that, that article on LinkedIn, I, I probably got 16,000, 17,000 views. That made me happy. But what really made me happy were the more than 100 comments, right? That's engagement. That's people participating in conversation, not just sitting on the sidelines. That was very, very compelling. The, the other you know, new thing, if you will, that I'm doing is I've decided to, to not just open up my, my hard drive, but open up 
my time, right? So now what I've switched to in terms of content delivery is I'm trying to enable actual contextual conversations with people. So every week, and I'm, I'm doing this currently on Wednesdays at 3 o'clock, I'm actually hosting a live coaching call. So I take a client whom I don't charge because they are going to participate in a live coaching session that others can subscribe to. So uh, every week for an hour, I sit down and I coach somebody through specific problems, prospecting, qualifying, discovery, closing, managing their pipeline. And, you know, that relationship will extend over time. But I really believe that others will get a very powerful benefit by watching me, you know, work on a specific problem, not an abstraction, with somebody that they can identify, oh, that, that sounds like me, I'm having that problem. Regardless of the industry, the size of the company, right, content has the flaw of always being an abstraction, right? It's just words and stuff and theory. When you're coaching another human being through a problem that they're having that has a direct impact on their life or their, you know, uh, their economics, their financial state, stakes are high, right? And they are engaged in that conversation and the audience, I'll tell you, is riveted. Yeah, that's, that's great stuff. So you've made the transition from content marketing to what you're now calling conversation marketing. And in... Ultimately, what it amounts to is instead of a bunch of paper and white papers and case studies and ebooks and all that nonsense that uh, that people use in droves, as we've already talked about at length, you've opened up your 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 brain. You've said, okay, look, instead of doing all this, let's sit down and have a conversation, and or you can sit and watch me work live. And I suspect the the whole idea is to get people comfortable with your approach, your philosophy, the way you do things, and in that live audience to see something that would apply directly to them. So. Voila, you create new opportunities. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people have said, well, this is neat. How do you plan to monetize it? And my, my off-the-cuff answer is I don't. Uh, I'm not actively trying to convert listeners into uh, clients. Uh, what I have found consistently over time is the degree to which I really wake up every day and, and, and try and serve my desired audience at a large scale uh, clients appear. I don't, I don't, so some people find this funny. I don't actively do any prospecting anymore, right? I create a community of interest that is focused on solving real problems for real salespeople, real sales managers, real sales leaders. And by growing that audience, it's not a shocker that once in a while people pick up the phone and say, Hey, can I get some more of this and pay you? So it, it really is, uh, I, mean, I wouldn't call it a Zen approach, but it very much is a, uh, you know, kind of a plentiful mindset approach that says there's plenty of customers out there. What I can't control is when they're ready to be served in a formal way. But right. if I can create a community of folks who are, you know, engaged in a conversation that they're passionate about, I'm passionate about, uh, I'm not going to have a problem finding clients. And, and it's playing itself out, right? My opt-in list is growing exponentially right now. Right? People that are following in the community, um, my live stream channel where I'm doing these broadcasts is growing. And you know, my email box is getting dings and pings from people saying, hey, do uh, you got any time for a real client? So it's been no, that, that, That's fantastic. To me, it's mad scientist sneaky. What, what I'm hearing you say is uh, th- there's a game going on over there, and everybody can see the bright lights, and they can hear the roar of the crowd, and they sort of wander over. And if they're interested, they come in and look. And if they're really interested, they say, hey, I want to play. And, and you're just giving them the opportunity to do that. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things I talk about a lot with my clients is the fact that you have to meet your prospects where they are today on their journey, right? 
I serve, as you mentioned earlier in the call, you know, small companies, one to 20 million. And what I found is that, you know, generally speaking, these entrepreneurial type of companies have a predisposition to figuring things out on their own. No shame in that, right? I mean, everybody wants to think they can figure out sales, figure out process, etc. If I came to the party trying to convince them that they were wrong and I was right, they couldn't do it, they needed me, that's not a very pleasant conversation. It's very antagonistic. If instead I come to them with a genuine belief that I want to help you, I want you to be successful. This is going to sound strange to some folks, but I honestly enter into every prospecting call or qualification call, hoping that I can serve this person without them ever having to be a client. I really hope that they can get what they need without me, that they can, without paying me, I should say, using resources, using my calls, etc. Because ultimately, Kelly, that allows me to serve a broad audience, right? The most fun that I have, the most uh, engaging work that I do is coaching. I love it, right? I love coaching a salesperson through a deal. I love coaching, you know, a sales team through specific challenges, not abstractions, not training and concept, but something that they can go do that afternoon, that week to make them more money. Well, the problem is there's only one of me and there's a lot of people who have that need. That's not really a problem because I, you know, that's how I raise my rates, if you will. So at this point, for better or worse, my services are frankly out of reach in most small companies. Unless you have a very high dollar uh, product or service, you're not going to justify, you know, me coaching on a deal, right? If you've got a half a million dollar deal that you're working, hey, I'm a couple bucks on that. Who cares? But if you're selling 25 bucks per user per month and your average sales price is 10 grand, it's probably not a good value proposition. So I was really frustrated that the thing I love to do most, I was not going to be able to scale, right? But mm-hmm. imagine now that I can go to a company and either as a free offering or as a product say, how about we coach one or two people in your entire company, but rather than making an exclusive, you know, just for those guys, make it part of the company culture, right? So this is really where I'm headed with this whole thing. I want to serve companies where I can coach within that company and let that coaching be a context for the entire organization to benefit, right? I'm doing it on a public scale today, but I could certainly see going into a couple hundred person selling organization setting up the exact same program where the entire company can benefit all the salespeople from very specific, very contextual work that I'm doing with a couple of either their best players or middle players or whatever. Yeah, that's such good stuff, Townsend. Hey, listen, as I told you at the break, you and I could talk for two or three hours and it wouldn't be (laughs) a problem for either one of us. Hey, let's do this. Uh, We need to take our time out. Tell people how, what is the best way to reach you? What is the best way to connect with you online? Yeah, you know, this will be funny, but uh, these days the best place to find me is is on LinkedIn, quite honestly. I think LinkedIn has really emerged as the premier social platform. You can do a search for Townsend Wardlaw. Uh, You probably can find you, and then I'm attached to you, and you can probably search for things like the the death of content marketing and find me. But, you know, I, I invite everybody to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect with you. I have a lot of posts on LinkedIn, and that will link you both to uh, you know, to my hard drive if you want that. It'll also link you to my live stream channel, which is where I'm doing these coaching calls. So hope to see some people uh, come through and join me there. And that's great stuff, folks. It is all out there for you to have. Find Townsend Wardlaw online. You can find him at townsendwardlaw.com. Better yet, go to LinkedIn and make sure you find him in the search function. Look for his article, The Death 
of content marketing, and you'll have it all for yourself as well. Townsend, can't thank you enough. Great stuff, my friend. Thanks, Kelly. This was great. Oh, super deal. We're going to take our final time out. We'll come back on the other side. We'll have our X's and O's segment with the, uh, the web tools guy, Mr. Miles Austin. Stay with us. This is the Business Locker Room on Voice America. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Kelly Riggs is an author, a highly acclaimed speaker, and a business performance coach for companies and executives across the country. Now in his eighth year as founder and president of VMAX Performance Group, Kelly has written two books, One-on-One Management, What Every Great Manager Knows That You Don't, and Quit Whining and Start Selling, a step-by-step guide to a Hall of Fame career in sales. Both are available on Amazon.com. Is it time to put Kelly to work for you? For more information on training or consulting in sales, leadership development, or strategic planning, visit VMAXPG.com. That's VMAXPG.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. Hi, this is Jeff Shore, author of Be Bold and Win the Sale. More great business ideas straight ahead in the Business Locker Room. Welcome back. This is the Business Locker Room. Thanks for joining us. Like I was uh, saying earlier, you can find everything you want to know about the Business Locker Room, the radio show, also the consulting company and the work that I do at bizlockerroom.com. Hey, follow me on Twitter, by the way, at Kelly Riggs. And if you've got a question about the show, have some ideas about the show, have some feedback for us, for me, for Miles Austin, for any of our guests, make sure you send that to me, Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, at bizlockerroom.com. We welcome in my good friend, Miles Austin, and as always, uh, the X's and O's segment where we break down the online tools that you have available to you. That is brought to you by our partner and our sponsor, 4D Sales, and we are big fans of 4D Sales. If you haven't seen it, haven't looked at it, go to four, the number four, 4dsales.com and look at the tool. It is absolutely a must-have for salespeople, a tablet-based sales tool that is available for Windows 8 devices, for iPads. Uh, It is something that allows a salesperson to increase their game, their professionalism exponentially. You've got everything that you need all together. And by having all of those things, price lists, brochures, PDFs, slide decks, web pages, videos, all different kinds of things, you've got all that together in one place, easy to use, and as a sales manager, it doesn't get any better. You ensure that all of your people have everything you need exactly when you need it. Well, 4D Sales makes it possible. Let's bring in my good friend, Miles Austin, who I think is hiding out somewhere in in a Las Vegas casino. Miles, is that where you are? 
Not the casino, at least not right now, my friend. I'm looking out my window at the very tip of the Luxor Pyramid in Las Vegas, correct? Oh, I know exactly where you are. So you're uh, you're there working, I understand. What's going on? Um, here um, at the request of the team at IBM, um, they're having their annual conference, bigger than ever this year. Um, and the conference is focused on something called big data and analytics. And it's something I've been doing some work with IBM now for about three months on, learning about it, writing about it, putting some shows together, uh, some podcasts and some video shows, um, just learning a ton. And it's it's just, um, you know, I, I sit in these sessions and, and I meet some of these uh, really, really smart rocket scientist type people that have created all this big data stuff the Watson supercomputer and all this stuff, and I'm listening to how they're now bringing it down and delivering it to day-to-day -day business people and in, in a natural language interface. And I'm just thinking as I watch and I see some of the applications, Kelly, I'm thinking, you know, I, I've been through a couple evolutions in my career when, when computers first started coming out and then the growth of that. Uh, and I'm, I'm literally sitting in these meetings going, I honestly get the feeling that we are on the verge of another massive shift in how business gets done around the world. Wow. Why, what, what leads you to say so? I mean, what, what's out there that's got your attention that kind of leads you to think like that? Well, you know, here's what I've learned is, and I think I'm a pretty smart business leader. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I've had really, really great success with people. And, and what I've learned is, is I sit and I've learned for the last several months is, the questions that I've always asked are great, but they are literally scratching the surface of understanding the business and, most importantly, understanding the customers, their preferences, their needs, their habits, and how they want to be served. And what, I, what I'm learning is I don't even know the questions that I really should be asking, but they can be answered with the use of the massive computing power that we all now have at our fingertips if we just apply the right type of tools. And it's just, it's amazing to me. I, I heard, a, I'll use an example of, of a, of a um, uh, statistic that was used just this morning in the general session that they said that most of us walking around with a smartphone in our pocket have more computing power than over 80% of all the satellites circling the earth. Wow. I mean, think about that. A smartphone. Now, now, remember, smartphones have obviously exploded, and they are very, you know, they're quad-core processors, right? But right. your smartphone has more intelligence and computing capability built into it than 80% of those satellites up there doing all this great stuff for us here on Earth. You know, it, it is amazing because uh, when we think about uh, cell phones. I remember having my first cell phone about 1987, if I recall. And of course, it was a car phone. It wasn't a cell phone. It had a big uh, piece that mounted underneath a seat. And then we went to bag phones and all those kinds of things. But just in the last several years, and this is uh, you know since 2008 or nine, just the camera functions alone on these smartphones have made these phones comparable to what we were doing with digital SLRs and even regular SLRs 15, 20 years ago. I mean, just the megapixel uh, resolution on these cameras today is, is incredible. And when you think that it is only a small part of all of the functions of a phone, it, it's mind-boggling. You know, it really is. And it's not even that far back, Kelly. I've got 
a shelf in my home office that I have a um, a Nikon, a Canon of the old, just the old standard film cameras, and I have multiple lenses for them, and they're high-end cameras, and there is of no value for me because I can't find anyone that will even process the film. But if you look at megapixels and all that, I have a whole long history because of my affection for tools and for all these technology toys back to some original um, Kodak digital cameras, some of the originals. And, I mean, one meg was unheard of back then. It's just like hard drive space and storage and everything else, right? We keep exploding in power and storage and capabilities. Um, and obviously that gives us that topic that we've been talking about last week in this, and that is the power to capture images and audio and do professional quality media all from that little tool in your pocket, your smartphone. You bet. And so this week we want to talk about some of the tools and uh, for our audience, we're going to put this on a resource uh, page on the website, bizlockerroom.com. We'll have that available later in the week. Some of the tools that you're going to share with us that enable me to pull my iPhone or my smartphone out of my pocket and begin to use it in ways that we can't even imagine or could not even imagine a half a dozen years ago. Shooting high-quality video, 1080p style HD video, you've got some tools and some pieces that we can use both both pre-production and post-production to enable us to do that. So why, why don't we start talking about some of those tools and make sense of them, Miles? Sure. Well, I think we kind of hit a little bit last week on the fact that the first thing you want to do, if you really want to capture from a video perspective specifically, you need to have some way to attach your camera to a tripod. And, and most cameras, at least the iPhones and most of the um, Androids don't have a mount or a little screw hole, if you will, built into it. So you've got to buy a device, and you can go to Amazon and just search for iPhone or Android phone um, uh, mounts for a tripod, and you'll have lots of selections. I gave you the one that we'll put up on the site that's my favorite. I've got three or four on my desk, and I've ended up just having one that I travel with all the time. And then you can have a multitude of different types of tripods. I always tell people you might already have one in your house, you just haven't used it for a while. But I'd also suggest that they go out and look at their local electronic store or Amazon or something and find one that's very small and portable and bendable that they can put in their briefcase. So I have one in my briefcase, I have one in my glove box in my car, and wherever I go, I have the ability. I can pop a, a tripod with the suction mount to the side window or the windshield of my car if something um, develops that I think I'd like to videotape that, I literally reach over, pop it in, and I'm up and running. Um, and then the tripod piece, the bendables, if you are, you can use it to wrap around a railing or a lamp post or some piece of furniture. So it doesn't always have to be set on a desk or a flat surface. But you really need that in order to get the very best quality from your video production. Yeah, you've got some very standard stuff here in the in the resource guide that we'll publish. You've got a smartphone tripod mount that uh, that you like from Reticam, and I'm looking at the pricing on that, less than $26, so that really makes a lot of sense. And when you start t talking about having multiple kinds of those or in different places, you're not talking about a whole lot of money. Uh, and there's one for a smartphone as well, and uh, you you like the Reticam. You've had some so, some history with that. Yeah, I have. As I said, I've got a bunch of them. I, 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 pro I literally have three or four at least in my drawer at home. But I like the Reticam for two reasons. It's a metal construction. It's very sturdy. 
Um, it's easy to adjust, and it will fit different phones of the standard smartphone size. Because of the new um, Plus from um, Apple, they now have a newer version that will take the 6 Plus and some of the other Android bigger dimension phones, more of the phablets they call them, uh, it'll take those. So you have to know, obviously, what phone type you have, and you'll order either the standard ReadyCam or the ReadyCam XL. Yeah, and then you like the Joby Gorilla Pod. It is called the flexible tripod that enables you to move it into various areas and angles and those kinds of things. And again, folks, it's less than twenty dollars. It's it's not hard to have a couple of those around either. Uh, absolutely, and again, it's flexible, so you can. Um, you know, there's times when I'm outside and I might want to use a backdrop or a, you know something for me in an outside setting when I'm recording maybe a welcome intro for a, a training class we're doing or something. I can literally find a like a, a parking post or a fence post or something like that. And because the legs are flexible, I can wrap it around it, hold it sideways, and still mount my camera, my phone, on it and use it in a stable condition. So I don't have to be either holding it myself and doing that selfie kind of thing. And I know it's going to be solid, stable, and in the um, landscape format that we recommended you really use last week. Absolutely. Now, the big question, we've got about three minutes left, Miles, and the big question always for people shooting video with an iPhone or even an iPad or you know some Windows or tablet device, and that is, how do I get the audio where it doesn't sound like it's in a big room and you can barely hear it? How do I get that professional sounding audio like it's being dubbed right into the tape? How do we go about doing that? you got two ways to do it. The easy way is to buy a little adapter. It's on the resource list, Kelly. You can give the listeners that information. It's a little adapter that plugs into the headphone jack, but it enables you to add a standard plug-in type microphone to your iPhone or your iPad. That's the easy way to go. The more difficult way but what is and more challenging sometimes is to use an external microphone recording into an external device, and then you just have to sync the two. But that's more work. Most of us probably won't go through that effort. Right. There's, and, and I've got a special tool I'm going to talk about last week. In fact, I've ordered it, and rather than talk about it this week, we'll wait till next week. But I've got a product that I wanted to look at and see if it works well. We'll bring that to you as well. By the way, there's nothing wrong with uh, syncing with you know, a soundboard and all of those kinds of things if you're in a professional uh, sort of situation, a presentation or something like that. But it is typically how you get that that microphone sound onto your video that makes the big, big difference to whether it sounds, you know, professionally done or if it's just, uh, you know, holding your phone up and letting people hear it. So you've got an adapter. We'll make that available to people on the resource page. And then you actually have a lavalier mic, and that connects. Uh, how, how, how does that sound get from my lavalier to the iPhone? It goes directly into that little adapter that we talked about. So any kind of a, that lavalier or anything like that with that kind of a plug, the plugs directly into the adapter that I just mentioned. You'll have to give the readers that information there, that little Y adapter, and that's how you do it, and it goes right in, and it sounds just like it would if it was on your computer. Yeah, so you've got a lavalier, and it's uh, connected, I, I assume, wirelessly or Bluetooth or something of that nature. and goes right into your iPhone. So, folks, now with the quality of the iPhone and the Windows devices that are out there, the, I, uh, the uh, uh, Droid devices, you have the ability to shoot world-class video. And by the way, it doesn't, we'll, we'll talk some about post-production next week and kind of finish up this three-week series. 
But these are these are things that you can use to shoot very simple, easy videos of you. And I hearken back to just the conversation I was just having with Townsend. Now we can have a conversation, Miles. We can do this by video. I can give you a message. It's very easy for me to put that into an electronic version, and then you've got it ready to go, and you can download it in the way that's best uh, best for your particular uh, use. We're in agreement. Yeah, good stuff. Always good stuff from Mr. Miles Austin. Hey, we'll wrap up the video series next week. And again, we're going to put it all out there on a resource guide so you can go get the things that Mr. Austin uses directly. We'll show you how you can get it onto your website, how you can edit it if you'd like to do those kinds of things. A lot of different tools are available to you in order for you to create video and put it on your site. There is no excuse for you not to have it. Many thanks, Miles. Great to have you, my friend. Thank you. I appreciate it. Safe travel. And we'll see you next week. Uh, special thanks to 40 Sales as well for making that segment, the X's No segment, possible. Uh, next week, great stuff coming up as I'll be joined by Stephen Gaffney. Cannot wait to have Stephen on board. We'll talk about communication. Folks, if you have any, any interest in communication as a salesperson, a business owner, or any variety of communication, Stephen is a fantastic interview. I'm excited to get him on board. Hey, special thanks to Michael Sergit, our guy on the other side of the glass that makes us sound better than we really are, and to Brandy Jackson, our executive producer. That's going to wrap it up for the Business Locker Room. I'll be back next week. Find us at bizlockerroom.com. I'm Kelly Riggs. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining the Business Locker Room with your host, Kelly Riggs. Kelly will be back again next week for more business building content and conversation for your playbook. Tune in Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel for another edition of The Business Locker Room. Remember, business is a competition. Play to win. Play to win.